that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, so before this, Jesus had just started his earthly ministry and started to perform miracles. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, so the theme we're going to be talking about today is this idea of being born again. All, all throughout this conversation, there, there's kind of this language of, of being born again, born again, born again. So what kind of birth is Jesus talking about? Right, right we see the answer in, in verses 5 and 6. He's talking about a spiritual birth. Right, right a, a, a birth from, from, into spiritual life. Okay? So what does that necessarily mean is true about Nicodemus right now spiritually? Well, if you need to be born spiritually, that means you're not alive spiritually. He's telling this religious, upright, buttoned-up leader of, of this religion that he needs to be born spiritually. We, we think Nicodemus should be spiritually alive. That, that's, what, that's why I had to explain who Nicodemus was, because we think Nicodemus should be spiritually alive, but he's not. So we're going to first see two ways that Nicodemus thought he was spiritually alive, tried to be spiritually alive, um, and, and I think we, we might have more in common with Nicodemus than we realize. So the first way we're going to see Nicodemus tried to be spiritually alive or thought he was spiritually alive and is that he thought it was inherited, but spiritual life is not inherited. All right, let's look back at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So why is Jesus saying he needs to be born again? Yes, he's spiritually dead, but, but what does that also necessarily mean is that his first birth wasn't sufficient for spiritual life. Nicodemus' first birth wasn't sufficient for spiritual life, but the thing you have to know about Nicodemus is that he didn't just become religious later in life. In all likelihood, Nicodemus grew up in a spiritual family, or, or religious family, I should say, where his parents brought him to the temple before he could walk. The first thing Nicodemus read was his Bible, right? Nicodemus grew up living this religious life, He, he thought that because of, of who his parents were, because of his heritage being Jewish, that he was spiritually alive. Okay, the Jewish people thought they were a chosen people by God who were already made spiritually alive. But, but this isn't true. Nicodemus is saying that, that that is not true. Nicodemus needs to be born again. His first birth isn't sufficient for salvation. 
Jesus is saying to us today that what your parents believe does not matter for your own personal salvation. But, but I think we often treat it like that, right? If I ask you guys, how, how do you know that you're a Christian? Well, I just grew up going to church. How, how do you know what you believe? Well, well, my parents told me all about it. When, when did you become a Christian? Well, my parents helped me, right? We, we put so much of our faith in, in what our parents have done or said. Okay, here's, here's how I, this helped me think about it, okay? So when you guys are young, right, like grade school, and you're having buddies over, friends over, you're like, oh, come to my house, right? Come to my house, come over to my house. And then you grow up and go to college, and all of a sudden there's this weird tension, right? You're like, you say, I'm going home, but what are you talking about? Are you talking about your house that's on Snelling, or are you talking about your house that your parents own? Right, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you get this idea that, oh my goodness, this house that I've called my house my whole life isn't actually mine. I don't pay for it. I don't, I don't pay to fix it. It's not my mortgage. It's not actually my house. I just grew up saying that it was my house. That's how a lot of us treat our faith. It's my faith, but then at some point in our lives, we get exposed and it's not actually our faith. It was never our faith. We just said it was ours. We just said because of what our parents believed, we also believed that. That's what Jesus is is helping Nicodemus to see. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he was born spiritually dead. We think that we inherit our spirituality, but what's actually true is that you have inherited something from your parents, but it's not spiritual life, it's spiritual death. All people that have ever existed have inherited spiritual death since the beginning of time. We inherit spiritual death. All right, the second thing, the second way that Nicodemus has tried to earn or thinks he has spiritual life but he doesn't is he thinks he can earn it. But here's what we're going to see is that the spiritual life or spiritual life is not earned. Let's look back at at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What is Jesus saying when he says flesh? Sure, sure, Jesus is saying like, your parents who are human beings with flesh have given birth to you who is also comprised of cells and is flesh. That is what Jesus is saying. But he's also talking about this inherited spiritual death. That's also what he's saying. He's saying flesh can't give birth to to spiritual life. Like non-spiritual flesh can't give birth to spiritual life. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you can't make a live thing come from a dead thing. But that's what we try to do. That's what Nicodemus has tried to do. Is that he thinks spiritual life can come from death but it can't. Here's what, Nicodemus, here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. No matter how many good things you have done or will do, you cannot achieve righteousness. You cannot achieve right standing before God. Again, remember who Nicodemus is. 
a religious man who has it put together, who's done all the right things for his entire life, and Jesus is looking at him in the face and saying, you cannot earn spiritual life. But, but we have to ask ourselves, how can a man who's lived his entire life doing the right thing not be spiritually alive, not be righteous? It's because the flesh is not righteous. We cannot work for righteousness or work ourselves into spiritual life. So here's what you're probably thinking. I, I get this question a lot. Yeah, yeah, but I know people who aren't spiritual and they do good things. They, they do righteous things. Or I myself am not spiritual, but I do good things. Here's what Jesus is telling us is that that's not actually true. That's not actually true. Because the flesh seeks what the flesh wants. Let me, let me give you guys an example. Let me help you guys see what I'm saying. Okay, let's say I'm, I'm an incredibly wealthy businessman. Incredibly wealthy businessman, okay? And, and I, I'm, I think I'm righteous, right? So I get one of those giant checks, and I sign my name huge, and I put a lot of zeros behind that number, and I go to a charity, and I say, this is yours. What a righteous act, right? As long as I get my name on the building, as long as there's a photograph of me handing off that check, as long as I appear generous and appear righteous. But what's actually happening is there's a transaction taking place. My money for you guys all thinking that I'm generous, for you guys all thinking that I'm righteous. Okay, that's an, maybe an outlandish example that you guys don't see in your own life. Let me give you one that's maybe more true to you. Man on the side of the road, you walk by him. He's asking for money. You take out your wallet, hand him a few dollars. No one sees it. You never tell anyone about it. That's a righteous act. It's not about me. But what is true? It's true of everyone in the room. You take out that money, you give the person that money, and you feel better about yourself. Even if no one knows that it happened or will ever know that it's happened, you feel better about yourself. It was a transaction the whole time. My money for my own self-satisfaction and self-righteousness. I feel better. Here's what Jesus is saying is that the flesh cannot do spiritual things. The flesh, no matter how hard the flesh works, the flesh cannot give birth to spiritual life. Dead things don't produce living things. This is what Nicodemus is seeing. This is what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see. He cannot do enough good things to earn righteousness. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. Right, That's what Jesus is teaching me as I work through this passage. That's again what I need to be reminded of. So we can't earn better standing with God. But, but we operate like that. We think like that all the time. If I go to church, Jesus will love me more. If I show up to Salt Company on Thursday nights, then maybe God will love me or I'll earn his favor. Maybe if I act a certain way and do the right things, then Jesus will love me. Or maybe if I don't do those things that other people are doing, then I'm doing the right thing. Then Jesus will approve of me. That's how we act all the time. 
right? The goal is being a good Christian, but that's actually just self-righteousness, right? Flesh, dead things can't give birth to living things. The flesh can't give birth to spiritual life. All right, here's another illustration that's helped me think of this. Guys, the election's coming up, and I'm not here to get political. I'm not trying to get political with this at all, so I just had to preface with that, but I have been thinking about the election. I've been thinking about the presidency. What does it take to be the president of the United States? A little Google search, remembering my fifth grade U.S. history class. You have to be 35 years old, you have to be a citizen of the United States for 14 years, and you have to be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Okay, but everyone in this room knows that it takes a lot more than that to be the president of the United States, right? It takes a lot more than that. So let's just imagine with me a, a, a woman named Sue, or if you want to be president, you can put yourself in this position, but for the illustration, let's talk about Sue, okay? Sue is born in Canada, uh, but, but pretty young, moved to the United States, Um, Her parents were involved politically. She was involved in the community from a young age. In high school, she was brilliant. Okay, she was brilliant in high school. So she went on to study political science at Stanford. She was a standout student in Stanford and then applied to Harvard Law and got in. So she went from coast to coast. Stanford, Harvard Law. I'm not saying you have to go to Harvard Law. A lot of presidents do, though. Okay, she, at Harvard Law, she has an internship at the White House. She's involved in political campaigns. She's doing all the right things. Okay, after she graduates from Harvard Law, she gets involved in local politics, which, which then grow into state politics. Then she's at the national level involved in politics, involved in campaigns. She is our perfect candidate for president of the United States. She's done all the right things. She has the right appearance. She's done the right things. She has the right education. She has the right recommendations. She knows the right people. But what's the issue? She was born in Canada. She's put on this face of doing the right things, but she wasn't born in the right place. Don't you see that that's what Jesus is telling to Nicodemus? You can live your whole life putting up spiritual walls, having done all the right things, but not actually be born spiritually. In order to have spiritual life, you have to be born in the right place. And here's the thing. Jesus is helping Nicodemus take his spiritual pulse in this conversation. That's what Jesus is doing. All Jesus has done up to this point is saying, hey, Nicodemus, take your spiritual pulse. And I don't actually think Nicodemus is fooled. Because I was Nicodemus at one point, but let me tell you, I just spent some time thinking about Nicodemus. Let me tell you what it was probably true about Nicodemus. And he'd probably get on a stage like this, and here's what he'd say. He told people that there was a coming warrior king. He'd get off the stage and he'd actually want to be the hero of his own story. Okay, so to be the hero of his, old sto- of his own story, he told people to live a moral life. Live a moral life like me. Look at my moral life, maybe if you just acted more like me. But what was true is he went home to his wife, he put his head on his pillow and he knew he wasn't actually a moral person. He knew he wasn't a moral person. And he lived in shame because of it. So to cover up that shame, he got on a stage like this and he said, the religious life is freeing. But what was true is he went home and he didn't believe it. He thought it was burdensome. And he thought it was depressing. 
because there's no way I can be good enough. His job was to tell people about the religious life, but he himself went home and didn't believe it. His job was to tell people about the religious life, but he himself went home and didn't believe it. That's who Nicodemus really was. Guys, I was like that for a lot of my life. Up until my freshman year of college, that's who I was. And I think it's probably the same with some of you. And that's okay. But some of you have been working your whole life to live as Christian of a life as possible. As good on the outside of a life as possible. You've worked and worked and worked to impress people, but you've missed a fundamental piece. You do all the right things, you say all the right things, you want to appeal to your parents, right? You want to make them happy, or maybe your friends, or maybe you just do it to make yourself feel a little bit better. But what's actually true is that you don't actually feel any better. You don't feel any better. This this might be true. People tell you to share the gospel. Hey, share your religion, your faith with someone else. But you don't. Why? Because you're not convinced that it's true. People tell you to, hey, confess your sin. Just just say what's what's going wrong in your life, how you've screwed up. But you don't. Why? Because you're afraid of being exposed as a fraud. Because I know I'm not moral enough. You, you come here and you say you're a Christian, but you go home and you're not convinced of it. You're not convinced of it. Saul Company, this is what Jesus is saying to you, is that you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead. And, and I, I want to address, there's probably another group of you in the room. There's another group of you in the room, and here's, here's the reality is you don't re- relate to Nicodemus at all. You didn't grow up in a religious house. You, you, you haven't lived a moral life. You're not even fooling yourself. You would never say that you've lived a moral life, but here's what you believe. I am too far from Nicodemus. If Nicodemus is spiritually dead, I am so spiritually dead that there's no way that I can be, that I can be brought to spiritual life. There's no way. I'm way too far gone. If he's, if he's gone, I'm too far gone. There's no way I can be loved. But the reality is everyone in this room needs to be there. That's where everyone in this room needs to be. I have sinned too much. I can't earn God's favor. I'm not moral enough. I'm not Christian enough. I can't put on a good enough front because I am exposed for who I really am and that's an unrighteous sinner. That's what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to do. Jesus doesn't want Nicodemus to associate with righteousness. He wants him to associate with a sinner. He doesn't want us to associate with being put together. He wants us to be associated with being broken. That's what Jesus wants from us. Here's why. is Jesus is setting up the stage for Nicodemus and setting up the stage for us for the second part of the conversation. So stay with me. There's a second part of this conversation and here's what we're going to see in the second part of the conversation is that only Jesus brings spiritual life. Only Jesus brings spiritual life. Let's look at at verse 9. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Right? Nicodemus is saying, now what? Now what? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Skip to verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, no one can know heavenly things unless he is born from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so up until verse 14, I am with Jesus, right? He's kind of running this like same logical flow of a conversation like we would. And then in verse 14, he starts talking about snakes and a man named Moses. And I'm like, yo, okay, where are you going with this, right? Okay, but Nicodemus isn't saying that. This is a, he's referring to a story from the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have known well. It's from Numbers 21. You don't need to turn there, but let me summarize the story for you. In Numbers 21, the nation of Israel has a snake issue. These snakes start coming upon the nation of Israel, and they're these incredibly poisonous, the Bible describes them as fiery serpents, and they begin to kill off the nation of Israel. These snakes begin to kill off the people of Israel, so the people cry out, God, we need a way. Help us, God. So Moses, who's their leader, goes before God and prays and says, God, make a way for your people. Make a way for your people. And here's what God says. Construct a serpent and wrap it around a pole and and put it in the air. And anyone who looks upon that serpent will be saved, will be healed. Okay, before we go any further, let's put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes for just a second. Okay, fiery serpents all around the ground, like everywhere. Okay, where are you focused? On the ground. Right? I'm not going to step near a snake. If a snake comes near me, I'm running away. Or maybe you're ambitious and you're going to try to stomp on its head, but you are so focused on the ground, and then one bites you. And then one bites you, and here's what you do. You continue to look at the ground because you continue to try to heal the wound yourself. Because there's no way anything outside of you can heal the wound. So you're you know, trying to cut off circulation. Maybe you lose your leg, but not your whole life. Right? You're so focused on the ground. That's what I'd be doing. Right? That's what I would be doing, but here's what Jesus says. Here's what Moses says, is you need to look up to be saved. You need to look up to be saved. But we don't have a snake issue, so why is Jesus bringing up this story? We don't have a snake issue. Why is Jesus bringing up the story? Because we do have a sin issue. We do have a sin issue. Sin is the thing that separates you from God it's, a, it's every thought, word, deed, action that is not part of God's design for you and has infinitely separated you from a holy God. That's what sin is. And we treat our sin the same way that we would treat the snakes. We look down, we try to fight it, and when it finally bites us, we think we can fix it. Maybe it'll take this part of me, but it won't consume all of me but I think we can all relate to this because we're all sinners in the room that at some point it begins to consume all of you. If, if we're honest with ourselves, sin has consumed your entire life. And we thought we could defeat our own sin. Nicodemus thought he could defeat his own sin. But Israel, Israel was healed because they took their eyes off of themselves and looked up at the bronze serpent that Moses constructed. 
So what's our solution? Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Which means Jesus himself must be lifted up. What does that mean? You see, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he knew the whole time. His mission wasn't just to tell Nicodemus that he wasn't a good person. His mission wasn't only to reveal his spiritual death. His mission was to bring him spiritual life. That's what Jesus wants us to hear. His mission isn't just to expose the dead nature of our spirituality. It's actually to bring you into spiritual life. Up until this point, Jesus is trying to get us to see the sin at our feet that's been killing us, that has killed us, and we cannot fight it. So instead, Jesus, who was himself God, was raised up on a Roman cross, a Roman torture and killing device. And on the cross, Jesus took on the excruciating pain of a physical death, but more than that, he took on spiritual death, which was separation from his father. The sinless, perfect son of God was punished not because he deserved death, but because we deserve death. And Jesus, three days later, was lifted up. But this time, not to his death, but to ultimate life. Proving that sin no longer has to separate us from God. If Jesus can overcome spiritual death, he has given us a way to overcome spiritual death. Jesus' resurrection power proves that we can have spiritual life. Proves that we can have spiritual life. Let's look back again at verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When we believe in him, when we trust the lordship of Jesus, that he died in our place on the cross 2,000 years ago, We, too, can have spiritual life, but what does it require? It requires us to lift our eyes off of our sin, off of the very thing that's killing us, and look to our only hope and only solution, which is way more beautiful. Which is way more beautiful. The beautiful thing is the point of the story. All right. I'm running out of time, but i got to tell the story. Um, Or, yeah, the way I've been thinking about this... Um, so, if you guys didn't know, I'm getting married on December 4th to, thank you. Um, it doesn't re- deserve an applause, but I appreciate that. Um, but I wish she was here. My beautiful fiance does deserve a round of applause. She is beautiful on the inside and out, and I can't wait to get married to her on December 4th. I've been thinking a lot about uh, December 4th. Here's why. Or here's what I haven't been thinking about, and it would be foolish of me to think about, is imagine I'm getting ready. I kind of like getting dressed up. I'm wearing a suit, wearing a tie. Um, It'll it'll be cool. Um, But imagine I get ready. I'm with my boys. I'm getting ready. I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm like, wow, I look really good. Um, And I'm just staring at myself in the mirror, and I hope one of my guys would come up to me and be like, yo, dude, you're missing the more beautiful thing. You're missing the point of the story, right? Because if I don't take my eyes off of myself, I've actually missed not only the more beautiful thing, but I've also missed the point of a marriage. I'd missed the ceremony. 
that's where we are. We're consumed with ourselves, and we refuse to take our eyes off ourselves, but what is that doing? It's, miss, it's making us miss the more beautiful thing. It's making us miss the point of the story. And it's in this context that we find the most cited verse in the Bible. This, all this has set the stage for the most cited verse in the Bible, which is John 3.16. You probably know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, in this moment, Jesus is being confrontational. He's confronting Nicodemus, but not in the way that we think. Jesus confronts us out of his love and with his love. Nicodemus is confronted because he can't comprehend the type of love that just gives righteousness. Right? It says, for God so loved the world. Here's what Nicodemus has spent his whole life thinking. Maybe God loves the Jewish nation of the people who do the right things, live the moral life, keep it together on the outside, then maybe God will love me. Then maybe God will love me. But here's what we see is that God loved the entire world. God loves broken, screwed up, shame-filled sinners like you and me. And in an instant, God can bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. In an instant, God can do that for you. That's what God is inviting us into today, is a spiritual life. Imagine, guys, if, if you aren't a Christian in this room, you have access to a whole another reality, a better, more full, more beautiful, better than you could ever imagine reality. You have access to that today. You just have to take your eyes off of yourself and look to Jesus, that he stood in your place on the cross, that he's your king. Guys, that makes the Christian life beautiful. Here's what I say to you. If you're the Nicodemus in the room, and you've trusted in your own ability your whole life, you're not really, you call yourself a Christian, but you're not really convinced of the Christian life. You don't think the Christian life is all that great. Here's what I'm guessing is true, is that you have not accessed the spiritual world that makes it the most beautiful reality in all the world. And if you can't relate to Nicodemus at all, if you can't relate to Nicodemus at all because your life has been defined by shame and sin and immorality and not being religious, doing the wrong thing, that's where we all need to be. That's where we all actually are. Otherwise, we're just kidding ourselves, thinking that we can earn our righteousness. We're just kidding ourselves. Saul Company, I'm asking you now, to take your spiritual pulse. Take your spiritual pulse. Are you spiritually alive? Do you know the living God? 
who gives you access to this spiritual world that's so much better than you could ever possibly imagine. Do you know that God? Do you know that Jesus? Have you put your trust in him? And if you haven't, know that you're not too far gone, you're not too late, you're not too filled with shame because God loved the entire world. And it's incredibly confrontational, but it is incredibly good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for that good news. We praise you that it's not about what we can do. Jesus, I praise you that it's not about what I can do because I'm screwed up. I pretended for a long time not to be screwed up. I pretended for a long time to have it all together, but I knew I wasn't. And Jesus, I praise you that you found me in the dark moments of my life and you showed me a better way. Father, that you have given me spiritual life and I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't have spiritual life. I pray that they would trust in you, that they would see the beauty of the cross. They would see your love that runs farther and faster than we could ever run from you. Jesus, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.